The text for this morning's message is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, and I invite you to turn to chapter 20 and follow along in your Bible as I read the text. We'll begin with verse 17. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, bound in the Spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I want to tell you this morning why I feel hopeful and optimistic at the end of the year, even though I believe I live in the midst of a culture that seems to be deteriorating and collapsing under the weight of its own unprincipled and God-ignoring ways of thought and life. The editorial in the Christmas morning edition of the Minneapolis Tribune began like this. It's drab in Minnesota this Christmas, as is fitting, perhaps. Peace and goodwill. Washington is paralyzed by scandal. The Libyans use napalm on Chad. The Iranians and Iraqis continue their bloodbath. Eugene Hasenfuss is out of Nicaragua, but not the Contras. Soviet troops remain in Afghanistan. Salt, too, is a memory. The promise of the Iceland summit grows stale. The Air Force announces the first 10 MX missiles are operational. News pages are filled with stories of hunger. The night isn't silent in soup kitchens and sleeping rooms for the homeless. Toys for tots, Santa Anonymous and food shelves accent the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. And, of course, they could have gone on with the AIDS scourge and a million young teenagers getting pregnant last year, 40% of whom chose to try to solve that problem by getting rid of the babies through abortion. They could have chosen to talk about middle and upper class drug abuse to the tune of multi-billion dollar cocaine and marijuana and crack. They could have talked about serious crimes increasing in Minneapolis. They could have talked about the fact that 40% of all the high schoolers in the suburbs of Minneapolis binge every two weeks. That means have at least five drinks in a row and on and on to document the deterioration and the internal collapse of a society that is 
unprincipled and God-ignoring. Now, why am I optimistic and hopeful in this context? I could say, real simply, I'm going to kiss it all goodbye someday and go to a better place. But that wouldn't be helpful because the optimism I'm talking about this morning is not simply an optimism beyond this world. I feel in my bones that there are signs of optimism that God may yet have a reforming and a saving and awakening work yet to do right here in this real world of Minneapolis through the agency of His people. I still have the words of Ralph Winter ringing in my ears from two years ago when in my house across the highway there he stood up and looked out the window late one Sunday night at the cityscape and he said, you know, John, maybe the best thing you could do for missions is to remake Minneapolis. And I think what he meant, we talked about it, what he meant was those people who go out from your church to another culture carrying a life-changing, culture-transforming message of good news might have more authenticity if they didn't come from a culture that was committing social suicide. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't intend to resurrect any of the naive, utopian, 19th century social programs. Marxism is a social failure everywhere it has been in existence more than two decades on this planet. And we are within just a generation or two of documenting that God-ignoring capitalism is a social failure on this planet. My optimism is not one that will propose a new social program. One thing I know, God in history has, by His grace and power, taken deteriorating and self-destroying cultures and turn them upside down, reforming them through the power of the Holy Spirit and the agency of the gospel. Consider only the 16th century Scotland under the influence of John Knox. Or consider 18th century England under the influence of Whitfield and Wesley and Wilberforce. Or consider Wales at the beginning of this century under the influence of Evan Roberts. Or consider the Sawi and Dali and Yahweh peoples in Irian Jaya under the influence of more contemporary missionaries. Whole societies revolutionized in matters of years or decades through the power of the Holy Spirit the overturning of cultural mores, the preaching of the gospel, and thousands of Christians coming out of the closets and testifying to the grace of God in their lives. And I sense that there are evidences in our own secular, decaying American Minneapolis culture that the potential is there and the time may be right for such a movement in our day in this 
city. Anyone who is willing to read the story of God that he has written in history about what he can do by divine grace and sovereign power in the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel can see what is possible in various locations and societies. Ultimately, all realistic optimism is rooted in God's sovereign freedom and grace, but there are signs cropping up in the most unlikely places. And I want to document a little bit of that for you this morning and then take you to a text that I think our culture needs very desperately to hear. One of the most remarkable things in December is what's been happening in the media. Specifically, the one I follow the closest, namely the newspaper, the Minneapolis Tribune. I don't even own a television, haven't for 16 years. And so I don't know what's going on there. But I read the newspaper to follow what this group of men who document news and make comment on our society are thinking and saying. And December has been a remarkable month. They have been serving the gospel unwittingly, I believe. Let me show you what I mean with four facts. Number one, the Tribune has publicly analyzed several extraordinarily difficult social problems. Uppermost, teen pregnancy and teen drugs. Multiple page uh, ads, but mainly uh, analyses. Second, it has documented and sometimes explicitly, sometimes by implication, spoken of the inadequacy of educational and governmental solutions to these problems. Third, it has in several instances openly admitted a sense of helplessness before these problems. And fourth, it has even hinted at the desperate confused vacuum of the human heart without God and then backed off from the full implications of that recognition. For example, let me illustrate some of these points from quotations from the newspaper to show you what has been troubling and exciting me as one who wants to bear witness to the truth of God's grace. December 19, that six-day, multi-page analysis of drugs among teenagers in the metropolitan area came to a close, and the ten months of research that went into it came to its climax. They said $2.7 million of the big federal uh, drug bill will come to Minnesota, and then they said, quote, the trouble with trying to attack the problem through education is that it never has proven successful. Drug education, counseling, and treatment. Law enforcement, border interdiction, and urine testing. All of them put together won't eradicate teenage drug use. They may not even make much of a dent. What will solve the problem? Probably nothing. Close quote. That's what I mean by coming up against a brick wall and a dead-end street in the social-secular analyses of these problems. Why? Why are there no answers coming forth? Here's the answer of these, this man and woman who did the research on this article. The fundamental problem with these efforts 
is that they don't do anything about the reason a kid is using drugs. The question is not how to keep kids from getting drugs, but why do they use them? Close quote. So close. Getting so close. Being driven by the frustration of all secular efforts to handle these problems right up to the brink of the crucial questions. Then they summarize the whys. Why do kids use drugs? Why do adults use drugs increasingly in our culture? They have a little... They didn't have much to say at that point. This is the last column of the last article. And they had some quotations from kids. And I picked out two of the most penetrating, I thought. Here's the first. From an 18-year-old young woman. It's what makes everything fun and not boring. Life didn't have an edge. It's not thrilling. It's not different. It's not daring. Close quote. That's the first quote. Here's the second one. From an unidentified teen. It is a prestige thing. A lot of in people talk about drugs. It's cool. Now, I hear behind those two statements, two cravings of the human heart that everybody in this room has and teens have with a vengeance and they're not evil. Not at their root. Number one, a craving that life not be boring. Or put it positively, a craving that life have adventure, challenge, thrill, something daring. You know, that's exactly the same thing Planned Parenthood said was the reason kids are getting pregnant. Here's a quote from one of their big full-page ads back in the first week of December. Teenagers are far more likely to have babies when their lives begin to seem pointless and when the doors to the future seem closed. And I couldn't help but reflect on the close comparison between the and the metaphor of pointlessness and this young woman who said life didn't have an edge, an edge and a point. Isn't that interesting? I want point, something that's got point, and I want something that's got an edge to it. And I know what they mean. I want that too. I don't want boredom. I hate boredom. That's why I'm a pastor. I want thrill. I want adventure. I want point. I want edge. I want precipices. I want adventure. I want ultimacy. I want eternity. I want everything that can be had that lasts and that is radical and thrilling and deep and powerful. I am greedy for life. I know what these kids are talking about. I feel those same things. And they're not bad. That's the first craving. The second craving is this kid who says it's a prestige thing. The in people do it. It's cool. What's he want? He wants to be significant. Put these two together. What are the kids saying? What do they want? What's at the root of all this mess? I think they're saying, I want authority thrilling significance or a significant thrill. I don't want a life that is a drag, that is boring. I want life to have an edge, a cutting, a point. I don't want to be empty and aimless. I want to have 
something that is worth kind of walking along a precipice for, that you might fall off of. And I say, Amen to every word of it. That's what I want. That's what deep down every person wants unless they've gotten so sunk in the mire of boredom that they can't even imagine what we're talking about. The upshot, however, of the whole month's analysis is the effort to fulfill these two cravings with illicit sex and drugs is backfiring on the kids and the culture. The kids' lives are being ruined and the culture is dissolving. Why? Because the vacuum of the heart with all of its longings for adventure and daring and thrill and a cutting edge and for a significance in life was never intended to be satisfied with illicit sex and drugs. What was that? Never intended? Never intended by whom? See it? You got it? You're almost there. Come on, Tribune! Come on! Say it! You're almost there. Never intended by whom? And they said it Christmas morning. Did you read that editorial? It just blew me away. It got me so excited that God may be doing something. There may be little evidences in our culture that God, through the secular media itself, is plowing the ground for the gospel to be spread through this city and turn it upside down. Who knows but what God might be ready to remake Minneapolis in the power of the Holy Spirit through the agency of the gospel. Let me read you what they said. They said that Malcolm Muggridge, you know who that is? Christian journalist in England, old man. I don't even know if he's still alive. I think he is. I can't remember. But very old anyway and became a believer and started writing his autobiography and Christian comment, they now respect him. That's such a witness to what you can do in your various secular disciplines if you are articulate and penetrating and level-headed and forthright and articulate. You, you'll win a hearing. Well, they hear Malcolm Muggridge, this Christian, and this is what they say. Christmas morning, lead editorial in the Tribune. Looking for God, Mugridge says, means understanding that power in all of its forms, wealth, fame, political or social position, is a dangerous fantasy. It makes us brutal and blind, in his words, to our Creator's purposes for His creation. I couldn't believe it. That's what you're supposed to ask all the time. That's what Christians are supposed to say. Come on, world, ask about God's intention for sex. Ask about God's intention for drugs and a heart that's yearning. Ask about God's intention for money and family and job. God is the one who has an intention and a purpose for His creatures that He has made to be fulfilled in His creation. Come on! And they did it. They just asked it right out there in the open so that we Christians didn't have to say anything. This is a golden opportunity for us to bear witness. I hope that this week as you go back to work after the holidays, your mouth will be full 
of the gospel that continues and answers the questions posed by the secular media right up to almost admitting that God's the only one that's going to have an answer for the teens in the Minneapolis metropolitan area? There it is. The question that we've been saying needed to be asked all along. And they were driven to ask it by the dead-end streets that they'd run into in their research concerning teen drugs and teen pregnancy and all manner of other things we could talk about where there's no educational, governmental, or secular solution at all. They go on. Listen. Perhaps... Now, let me read and insert a comment. Perhaps we think so much about peace between nations that we think too little about peace within selves and families and neighborhoods. Perhaps, now, if a fundamentalist preacher had said this next sentence, he would have been laughed out of court by the secular media. Listen to this now. Perhaps the comity of nations cannot be bestowed top-down on fractious peoples by negotiators meeting in Geneva, but must percolate up from the power of individual peace-filled lives. Incredible. Incredible! Lead unsigned editorial. That's the position of the Minneapolis Tribune. And then they finish, perhaps the world is hard because we are hard because we have made a Faustian bargain to purchase the fantasy of power. Listen, are you guilty as an evangelical Christian of putting your head in the sand like an ostrich when you say to your colleague or neighbor or classmate, you know, brother and sister, what you need, what the world needs is for individuals to come to terms with what their purposes have with what their, their creator has for the purposes of their lives. Every individual needs to deal with God. That's what our world needs. Have you got your head in the sand when you start talking like that? No. You are beginning where the secular media is ending in a pensive late night moment at the end of 1986 when all other roads are closed. You don't have to be ashamed We have a word that our world needs and in their most pensive, penetrating moments, they know they need it. And it doesn't matter if in their haughty moments they scorn you and your individualistic religious answer because later on, when all the doors close, they'll remember what you said. It will be life. Come out of the closet in 1987. Speak to your colleagues about the truth of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of the grace of God. This world needs to hear a cause to live for that revolutionizes life and gives victory over illicit sex and drugs and all the other temptations. And I want to take you to one verse and spend a few minutes with you showing a man who had a cause to live for that revolutionized his life. It's exactly what we need to hear. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. The man is the Apostle Paul. And we'll read the verse forward and then we'll read it backward. And just take it a word at a time and finish up here with something that our culture needs very much, I think. Forward, verse 24. I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. 
If only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, let's read it backward. And what I want you to see are the four immense realities that drive this apostle, his cause to live. Immense reality number one, the last word in the verse, God. Paul was besotted with God. His universe was filled with the light of God. In the constellation of his purposes, God was the one star blazing with light and all the other little things like tent making and get along with his colleagues and forming mission plans and so on were like moons having attraction and value only insofar as they reflected the light of this star called God. He was utterly enamored with the breathtaking reality of God. That's immense reality number one. Immense reality number two, grace. We're just moving backward in the verse. The grace of God. What's grace? Try this analogy. God is like a hurricane. And His power and His holiness and His wrath are like the winds swirling through the world at two, three hundred miles an hour, ripping and tearing and destroying wherever there is sin in the end. Where's grace? Grace is the eye of the storm. And Paul on the Damascus road was just ripped off of his horse, blinded and brought to his face by the winds of the hurricane of God's holiness. And then to his utter astonishment, he found himself waking up in the eye of the storm called grace. He never got over it. He never got over it. The chief of sinners... And I'm here looking out on the spectacular winds of God's wrath and holiness and at home in the heart of God called grace. No more guilt. No more fear. No more sin. No more pain. At home with God, the chief of sinners. He never got over it. And that led to immense reality number three called gospel. He now had a message and his message to Minneapolis was, there is a God and he's gracious to people who trust and submit to him. Sure, he may sweep you off your feet with his holiness and wrath, but there is an eye of the storm where you can live forever and ever and take an eternity to delight in the magnificence of his manifold perfections. Come on in. It may be painful through the wind of holiness and confession, but there is peace at the middle It's an immense message we've got to share and he lived for it. And that's immense reality number four, to testify. That was the cause for which he lived, to testify, to speak of the gospel of the grace of God. So there is what Paul lived for. God, grace, gospel and a testimony that was all his life. Now, what effect did that have on Paul and what effect might it have on teenagers if we threw the challenge before them in the way that it ought to be thrown? Two effects. Look at the first one right in the first of the verse there. It made him utterly indifferent to earthly gain. 
I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. That is incredible. I mean, you, when you hear a man talk like that, and then you see the testimony of his life bearing the truth and authenticity of it, you say, there is a man who's free. Free, free, free! Because he can die and he doesn't give a rip if he dies. His life is of no value but to accomplish one thing, which we'll look at in just a moment. So what did the cause for which he lived do for him? It freed him from the slavery of loving life. And you know what that slavery does? Life supports drugs. Life supports coolness. Life supports sex. Life supports money. If you don't care about life, everything collapses in its power over you. Right? If you've given up on life, if you don't care if you lose your life, then drugs can't hold you. Sex can't hold you. Money can't hold you. You are the freest of all people when life doesn't matter anymore. Now, why could he say that? Where could he get such freedom from the world and life? He had one purpose to live for. And its second effect was an incredible discipline. Why? Here's the answer to both of those questions. Second phrase. If only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, what's he doing here? He's picturing himself as an athlete, a marathoner. He has a course and he is going to finish it. By the grace of God, Christ called him. Christ is the award at the end. Christ is the coach and the trainer. And he is going to finish it. And he doesn't care if he loses his life, provided God enables him to finish that course. It might be tomorrow when he dies. It might be in the Roman jail. It might be in Spain. It might be in England. He doesn't care as long as God keeps him on the track and he doesn't go off to one side or the other. So here are the effects of a cause to live for. The first effect, freedom from the world and life in the world and all the things that that life sustains and the bondage that they can have upon us. And an incredible discipline. Discipline. We're going to talk more about this tonight. To stay on the road. Here he is running. And this, this marathon is not downhill. It's uphill. It's got big rocks on it and thorns and your feet get bloody. And over on this side, there was a young woman in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Philippi. And she was saying, come on, Paul. You're a single man. You must really need me. A single man he was all his life long, guys. And women, and he lived for God to the end. He never gave in to that temptation in the temples in Ephesus or Corinth. And then over here on the left-hand side was perhaps not drugs, but maybe something else. Maybe there were some kinds of drugs. I don't know. Something that said, here's a thrill that you could have. Here's something. And Paul fought it. And gloriously disciplined himself and pommeled his body. Why? Because life was boring? God knows his life wasn't boring. Shipwrecked, beaten, 
sustaining churches, friends who loved and died for Him, an adventurer par excellence on the road all the time. Here was a man whose life was full of danger, full of precipices to walk along, full of a goal that was beyond all comparison. Not to follow Paul, but to go off to one side or the other is to compare a mighty athlete to a dog in heat. I can't believe that teenagers, if they were presented with the challenge to live a life like Paul lived, instead of rolling each other in the back seat of a car like tomcats, that they couldn't see the difference of the glory, the power, the edge, the point, the thrill of a real life lived for a real king. We haven't told them. We haven't challenged them. All they get is this rot from radio and from television. And we keep our mouths shut. Look, what the world needs, what Minneapolis needs, is a cause to live for. We've got one. It is thrilling. I left the college because it wasn't good enough. I am an addict for thrill. I have got to have the brinkmanship. And I... I tell you, every time I read a mission biography, and I just finished finished Lords of the Earth on Christmas Eve, I have a crisis professional experience. Because when I saw Stanley Dale get shot with a hundred arrows, and he pulled out 30 of them before he died and broke them in front of the Sawi, I said, I want that! I want that! And here I am, just an old pastor who deals with a thousand people and gets to preach every Sunday. and, And I tell you, I have a crisis experience. I am so greedy for adventure and for thrill in the Christian life and for more of God and more of grace and more revolution in this city and this world that I can hardly stand it sometimes. And you just need to pray for me that if you think I could be of more use to the kingdom, that I would stay here. That's my conclusion at this point, that I can get more people thrilled to the mission field by being the pastor of this church than going off to New Guinea by myself. But I tell you, I just want you to feel how right and good it is to be an addict for adventure. And that there is more to be had in God, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, than in playing like a dog in heat. I can't believe it. I just can't believe what people do. Let me close with a quote from a letter from John Genstead. Good old John. What a great trophy of grace. If you knew John's background like some of us do. Man. Here he is down in Suriname now. He's gone out from Bethlehem. And he's teaching high schoolers. And he's supporting Wycliffe missionaries by teaching their kids and some others. He wrote me a letter. I got it on Christmas Eve. And here's his first paragraph. And I'm done with this. I can't, dear John, I can't think of any greater movement to be involved in than bringing God's truth to the nations. It makes the UN, the environmentalist movement, mad, look like nursery school. It's like comparing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony to a TV commercial. Given a real choice, why would someone want to dedicate his or her life to something with only temporary value? when he or she could be involved with a cause with eternal significance. 
close quote, close case. Let's stand for prayer. Oh God in heaven, sometimes late at night and Christmas Eve and thereabouts, like the editors of the Tribune, we get glimpses of a city reformed by the gospel of your sovereign grace. And then we shrink back and say, good night, who am I? Nobody, little teeny person, and the forces of evil are so great. Oh, Father, give us faith and give us boldness. Give us clarity and forthrightness in our witness this year. Grant, I pray, O oh God, that a new work happen at Bethlehem, that prayer week be the beginning of something great, and that churches all over this city would feel the outpouring of Your Holy Spirit in revival and awakening, and that reformation would grip the structures of this city, and we would see a work of grace that would magnify Your name beyond anything we had ever dreamed. Do it for the glory of Your name, for the good of Your people, for the salvation of so many lost sheep. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.